0: Welcome to the AKC podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Thank you very much, Claire, and the rest of the team. Um, You run everything like clockwork, it's amazing. Um, So, thank you very much for all of your organization. Um, It's been incredible. Um, It's a real um, pleasure and privilege to be here with you today. So, as Claire says, I come from an art history and sort of art history and literature background in a way, Um, but I'm in the art history department um, at the Courtauld. Um, We just do art history and conservation. Um, if you don't know us very well. But if you haven't been to the gallery, come and visit at some point. We're just literally next door to you. So go and look at some paintings in there at some point. Um, And I suppose I come to you with a particular interest in 20th century art um, from the angle of kind of modernism and the sacred, um, is what I'm going to be speaking to you about today. And I think it's been something that has been a personal and a research interest of mine for quite a while. Um, And the particular church that I want to speak about today is perhaps one of the less known Ones in this series. Um, I think you've had lectures, haven't you, on St. Paul's and Westminster Abbey and the National Gallery, places that everyone has heard of. Um, but I wonder if this is somewhere that perhaps you won't have heard of. Um, there's a very small French Catholic church called the Église Notre Dame de France in Leicester Place. Um, and I remember coming back from my year abroad in France when I was an undergraduate student and sort of happening upon it. Um, and I, I suppose I belong more to an Anglican background rather. Than a Catholic one, but nonetheless, it was exciting to me to find um, a small French-speaking church community in the centre of London, Um, and it's a really fascinating building. So it's the building, really, that we're speaking about today. But I'd like to look at it in terms of the kind of theological programme that it presents for us. Um, And to do that, I think we need to go back to its origins a little bit and think through how it was built, why it was built, where it was built, um, and that kind of thing. And it's um, it's somewhere that you could go and visit if you want to. I don't. Has anyone been? there? Anyone been there before? Yeah, one person has. Exciting. There you go. Um, It's a little bit hidden away. It's just off Leicester Square um, and it's in a place called Leicester Place. Um, So it's that sort of northern edge of Leicester Square and you just turn into a little road. It's right next to the Prince Charles Cinema which bills itself as the best value cinema in London. I think probably is actually. Um, So if you want to go and watch a film there's a church right next door. Um, I'm going to speak um, about the church under sort of three themes, in a way. Uh, I suppose I've structured the lecture a little bit around those, so hopefully it will be fairly easy to see where I'm heading. Um, I'm going to think about the idea of devotion and the idea of doubt and end with a section about the down and out, um, and we'll come to what I mean by that um, in a moment. So here is what the space That we now know as the church looked like in 1793, or at least these are some drawings that give us an idea. Um, Now, in the sort of 16th century, um, there had been some wars of religion, and the Huguenots, who were French Protestants, had ended up having to leave France and had come, a lot of people, to London as refugees, effectively. Um, And one of the areas that gradually built up a bit of a French community um, of Protestant um, French Christians as a result of that was Soho. Um, there was another large community around Spitalfields, um, but there was a large community in Soho as well. And gradually that meant that the population of Soho became a little bit more metropolitan, perhaps a bit more bohemian, certainly more eclectic. Um, and there was, a, there was a large growing French community which gradually integrated into the English community that was there. A lot of Protestant churches um, had sprung up. Um, there was an interesting sort of sense that maybe this was a threat to the um, English-Anglican churches, and there was also a sense in which the French Catholic community needed um, a place to worship, as well as finding Protestant churches. So... um, the Marists were a particular group of Catholics who wanted to, wanted to serve, really. They were a serving community of Catholics um, with the particular idea of being like Mary, to the world and I think probably in the introductory lecture um, which I managed to watch um, Ben showed you an image of a Mary figure who was benevolent holding people under her cloak and that's going to crop up again for you in a moment and it's sort of the image and the logo of the Marist community um, that uses this particular church that we're going to be thinking about but the background to all of this is that that Marist community saw Soho effectively as a mission field, a place where they could help out, a place where they could provide opportunities for education, opportunities for um, a homeless mission, Um, because of the um, sort of the particular area of Soho, um, which had also become an entertainment district, it had become a centre for prostitution alongside the French community. They saw a particular space where they could minister to that community. And they were looking for a place to build a church. And... One place became available, and it was somewhere that had originally been what we now know as a panorama. Um, And this is Burford's Panorama. So, this is the place that is now the Église Notre Dame de France. Um, This was opened in 1793. It was a sort of pre cinematic form of entertainment. Um, So, I think it's quite nice that it's now next door to a cinema. Um, But it was a pre cinema um, idea. You could go in, and you could see a large scale. Painting or panorama, which you could climb up some steps to look at from a height, or you could be immersed in because it would go round you. So it's a sort of immersive entertainment space um, for almost virtual travel. I suppose. Um, The one on the right here, um, I'm showing you Edinburgh and London on display, and this is a a drawing from 1801. Um, And the one on the left is a view from 1858 of the exterior of that space. And you can just about see there that they're advertising um, Delhi is on a show at that particular moment. So you can go to Leicester Place, you can go to Burford's panorama, um, and you can see panoramas that have been created by Robert Burford that will enable you to travel and be immersed in a different culture. You step out of Leicester Square, and you go into London, or Edinburgh, or Delhi, or whatever happens to be on display at the time. So it's a fascinating idea, I think. Um, But by the time we get to the middle of the 18th century, really panoramas were starting to go out of fashion a little bit. And this space became available. And the Marists, who were looking for a space to worship as a community, um, acquired um, Burford's Panorama in 1865. And they changed that into a church, and they needed an architect to do that. And the architect they found was um, Boileau, Louis Boileau, who was known for steel architecture in France. He built things like market halls, um, that kind of thing. Fairly easy and quick to construct, and not too expensive. Um, and he built the first version of what is now the church there. Um, And in some ways, I think it felt quite vernacular. It felt like an entertainment space or somewhere that you might go in the everyday as opposed to being a sacred space. And I think there's an interesting crossover with some of the other things that you've perhaps been thinking about in this series about what constitutes a kind of shared space and what constitutes a deliberately um, sacred one. So they're repurposing a building but retaining a lot of the shape Of the panorama. Because of the site itself, the circular shape fits. And so they keep a kind of rotunda shape. Now, unfortunately, that building, um, which was consecrated in 1868, was severely damaged in the Blitz in 1941. And it had to be all but rebuilt, really. And the church, amazingly, managed to stay open and continue holding services there and continuing its various um, social mission. Um, activities during the war they managed to see the war out in that really badly damaged building Um, but then following that it needed rebuilding some parts of the thick walls and the iron structure had survived and they kept that when they did the rebuilding Um, but it was actually quite unusual to be granted a license to rebuild Um, And they were given one in 1952. Most rebuilding at that point was residential. So, it was quite unusual for an ecclesiastical space to get a license to rebuild in 1952, but they did. And at that point, the French cultural attaché in London was one René Varin. And he was quite quite interested in making this a contemporary space and engaging architects and, eventually, artists, which we'll come to, in making this space um, a really So a contemporary, usable worship space, and he had a couple of ideas. um, One of which was too expensive, and in the end, John Charles Moreau um, kind of repaired the space rather than entirely rebuilding it. And that is what we have today as a result of his rebuilding of it. So it was rebuilt between 1952 and 55. And you can see the outside there. You can see it next to the Prince Charles um, Cinema. And then you can see some Chinese lanterns in the background there. It's right on the edge of Chinatown. Um, and then on the other side, you can see the, the rotunda shape of that interior, which has kept the 12 pillars that were there in the original construction by Boileau. Um, so it's a really fascinating space, I think. It's very much in the round. And it's got lots of little side chapels. And it's one of those that we'll have a little bit of a think about in particular today. So it's flooded with light from this skylight. It's built all the way around, so there's not much space for other light in a way. It's got lots of sort of skylights that come down into the chapels. Um, But that round structure is very much retained from the panorama, as you can see. So it reopened for worship in 1955. And by then, they'd managed to commission various artworks for the building as well. And there's a little bit of a context for this. um, Because... Before the war, really, this started, um, sort of 1937, a group of um, Catholic monks, Dominican monks, had started to think that actually a lot of the art that was on display in Catholic sacred spaces was rather retrograde or rather second rate. And um, Père Marie Alain Couturier and his friend Père um, Regami came up with a journal called La Sacre, where they debated some of these issues um, and started to think about what modern sacred art should or could look like if it was in the hands of really good, quality, first rate artists. And Marie Alain Couturier famously and perhaps slightly provocatively said, All true art is sacred. It is better to engage men of genius who have no faith than believers who have no talent. Um, So rather than having second-rate artists in the church purely because they are believers, let's engage top-quality artists of their time regardless of their beliefs. Now, you can see how that might be a little bit controversial, and I wonder how you feel about that. I wonder if you think that an artist's um, authorship and biography is important to the way in which they might be able to understand what is required of a sacred space and of the artworks that are going to hang within it, hopefully to inspire people to worship. Perhaps we can think a little bit more about that in relation to one particular piece in the church in a moment. But I thought I would talk you through um, a few of the um, pieces in there. Actually, just before I do that, here's a. This is one of the projects that um, Lars Sacré managed to get off the ground. So this is just after the war, which was quite an achievement, really. Um, and this is in the French Alps. It's called the Église Notre-Dame de Tugras on the Plateau d'Assy, and it's in a. a A small um, French alpine town. And if you look at the outside of it, it looks very much like you would expect uh, an alpine chalet um, building to look. Um, But this was a a real success point for La Sacre, and they managed to employ a lot of artists. Let's see, we've got a mosaic by Leger on the outside. You can just about see in one of the arches there. a, a set of tiles that were decorated by Matisse. Um, there's a crucifix at the front by Germaine Richier, um, a very famous um, mid-20th century sculptor, um, female. There's a huge tapestry at the front by Jean Lursat. Um, of the apocalypse. And he's famous amongst tapestry designing circles. He might not be a name that you've heard of. There's a Chagall mosaic in there. Um, There's a Brac. There are some windows by Georges Rouault, who was loosely related to the Fauve group. Um, There's all sorts of fascinating artworks in that church. Some by artists that you might expect to be willing to contribute to a sacred space. And some by artists that you might think Would belong better somewhere else, like Chagall. I mean, actually, there are windows and things by Chagall that you can see even in the UK. Go to Chichester or go to a small parish church in Tudley in Kent, and you'll see some Chagall windows. Chagall was very famously a Jewish artist, and you might wonder whether he would have been more comfortable designing for a synagogue than a a Christian or Catholic church. Um, So there are some interesting question marks, I think, over why some of these artists were willing to contribute um, and what that does to the space, and it's been contested as to whether it's a a good space or a successful space or not. I actually think it's a remarkable project and I think it's a fascinating approach to take. Um, And I think some of my thoughts on that might come out as we look at the Cocteau piece that I particularly want to speak about in London. But there's a sort of precursor, in a way. and The French cultural attaché René Varin is aware of the Ars Sacré movement um, and knows Père Marie-Alain Couturier when he thinks about which artists he's going to help to commission for the church in Leicester Place. Okay. So one artist that they get is Georges Laurence Sopique, and he designed some relief sculptures for the outside of the church. Um, and there you can see we've got the um, Madonna de la Misericordia um, type figure there, the Madonna of Mercy, who has got her cloak outstretched for all who are in need, and holds the Christ at the centre of her, I think sort of in a way in which the universe couldn't hold Christ. So it's elevating Mary to being a figure who could who could hold God, who could carry God within her, um, and who could then offer that strength to the people who were in need. And she's sort of become the symbol of the church. So I've given you the little logo um, next to that. That's where their, their logo now comes from. Um, so Peak also did a, a series of low reliefs on the... Um, on either side of the door. So as you go into the church, um, you can just about make it out. I don't know how well you can see this. They're quite small on the screen probably. Um, But at the top there, we have the Annunciation where Mary is visited by the angel and told that she's going to have the Christ child. There's an image of the Nativity below that. There are episodes in the life of Mary, really. Um, And Below that, we have a couple of images that include Joseph as well, um, her husband. Um, At the bottom there, you can see him as a carpenter in his workshop. So those are the images that um, greet you as you go into the church. And the, the Mary is over the doorway. Um, I think you could see that in the previous picture that I showed you. There you go, that's where she sits um, over that archway. Okay. And then inside there are various other artworks, one of which is a tapestry um, by a Benedictine monk called Dom Robert. And he was actually a pupil of Jean Lursat, who had designed the enormous Apocalypse tapestry at the front of the Plateau desi church that I've just shown you. So there are some links across the communities that are creating art at this point. Um, and he uses this sort of almost painting by numbers type style of working, which Lursat also used. If you're going to design a tapestry, you have to instruct the weavers. You don't weave it yourself. And so you have to produce quite detailed plans of how you want that tapestry to look. And so Dom Robert had learned from Jean Lursat and was capable of giving quite specific instructions to the weavers. And in some ways, this still is like a very traditional piece, I think, this tapestry at the front. Um, It's an image of either Eden or heaven, depending on how you think about this. Um, I think the bride in the middle could either be Eve, or it could be Mary, the Queen of Heaven, or it could be wisdom, or Israel, or the church itself. Um, All of those things are sort of pictured as a bride at various moments. And it's almost as if those things are conflated into that one figure there, um, with the sort of milfoy um, foliage in the background, a very traditional way of depicting leaves and greenery in tapestry. Lots of animals there, all getting on very well, regardless of whether they should or not. Some of them seem to be symbolic. Um, The deer, you might recognize from psalms, like, As the deer pants after the water, so my soul longs after you. There are sort of resonances with various passages in the Bible. The peacock has been seen as an image of the resurrection. Um, There's a cockerel in there, um, which perhaps... Um, is the harbinger of dawn and awakens everybody, but is also the symbol of France. So there are lots of sort of ambiguous references. The animals are symbolic, but could be several different things at once in places. The lamb is perhaps an image of Christ himself, the lamb of God. Um, But there we have Mary or Eve or whoever she is, the queen of heaven, the bride of heaven, perhaps the church, surrounded um, by these animals in a kind of Edenic setting, which is perhaps Eden or perhaps the restored new heaven. I think that image of restoration actually is quite important for a church which has just been rebuilt. And so There's a sort of symbolism of rebuilding in there as well. Um, the artworks were chosen quite carefully and they were made to be site-specific. Um, so all the things in there do have a sort of sense of of place there's a flight into Egypt actually which has been installed more recently Um, I can't think exactly when, 2014 or something I think Um, and I think that's meditating on the idea partly of a refugee community in the history of the church but also on the way in which that um, mission is still needed um, for a refugee population today Um, that image of Christ himself as a refugee is someone who had to flee his country as a result effectively of genocide um, sort of resonates with that community. So I think there's a, a sense there in which this tapestry fits that idea of restoration. And there's a quote on there, you can just see it, it's in Latin at the bottom edge here. Um, then I was beside him like a master workman, rejoicing before him always. And we understand that to be wisdom speaking. Um, so wisdom was there at the creation of the world, which again gives us that sense of creation. Um, what else have we got? This is Boris Anrep's Mosaic of the Nativity, which actually has quite an interesting history in relation to the rest of this chapel. So we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. It looks quite simple. He was a, a Russian artist, an immigrant himself, and actually also designed mosaics for the National Gallery. Um, so if you go there, you'll see a link again to this church. That seems to be a fairly straightforward composition, I think, doesn't it? Um, and then there's a, a Stations of the Cross, which is a means of walking the route that Jesus took to Calvary um, via 14 different stations. And I've given you a few of them there. That's Christ being tried, Christ carrying his cross, Christ on the cross, and then Christ being taken down from the cross. Um, so there's something sort of devotional um, about those. You can go round and you can walk the route that Christ took. So in a way, what I'm suggesting here is that these are all acts of devotion within that church. We don't know exactly when these tiles came from. These aren't part of the restoration. They seem to have been there before. So it's possible that they belonged to the church earlier. But I think the fact that they're on tiles will be interesting for us. Now this is the artwork that I think is probably the most fascinating one in the church and it's by Jean Cocteau. Um, Cocteau was a poet, he was also a filmmaker. Um, He was quite famous by the time he did this, actually. Um, And I think Vahan makes an interesting point. Vahan says, as the cultural attache, I called on Cocteau because I thought we should include some contemporary art as long as it was not outrageous. Um, So you can decide whether you think this is outrageous or not in a moment, I think. So Cocteau, because he was so well known, attracted quite a crowd. And he actually painted this image, which they look like frescoes. They're actually murals. They're painted onto the surface. The plaster was dry. That's the difference. A fresco would be painted onto wet plaster and becomes part of the wall. These are painted onto the surface. Um, Cocteau actually painted them over the course of a few days, from the 3rd to the 11th of November, 1959. Um, the little chapel is consecrated in 1960, which, he was, which is why he signs it in 1960 um, at the bottom there. And It's the Lady Chapel. Um, of the the main church. So it's in one of those arches at the side. Um, There are lots of things that we could notice here. And in many ways it looks like a fairly conventional image, I think, when you first see it. It's a crucifixion. It's fairly straightforward, perhaps. Um, Flanking that, we have two other images from the life of Mary, which is what tells us that this is a Catholic church rather than a Protestant one. Um, The Annunciation on the left, and on the right, the Assumption of Mary to heaven with trumpeters taking her up to glory. Um, And I think those two images, I think, are fairly straightforward in a way. I think the one in the middle is quite a lot more complicated. Um, So let's have a bit of a look at it. I've got some slightly more close-up pictures for you. There's Cocteau doing his artworks, and Cocteau, he was a member of the avant-garde um, in many ways, that's how we would think of him. He was, a, a, as I say, a filmmaker and a, a poet. Um, and he led a fairly colorful life. He'd been an opium addict for a while as a result of a failed homosexual relationship. He'd been thrown out of school when he was a teenager. He was the sort of enfant terrible of his family, um, the black sheep in a way. Um, but by the time he gets to doing this, he sees this as a real project of devotion. And we're led to believe that he is um, returning to his own Catholic faith. As he does this. Um, And he speaks to the murals as he's painting them. That's the sort of record that we have that he would speak to the Virgin Mary almost prayerfully as he was doing these. So you might see this as an act of devotion as well. I mean, if you look close up, I think there are a few things that are really important here. Um, This is the central section. Um, And one thing I'd like you to look at is those tears that come down from the eye of the figure that we assume to be Mary. I don't know which Mary you think she is. Maybe that's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Think a bit more about that, too. Um, But the tears that come out of her eyes relate to the blood drops on Christ's feet. And then also to the tears on another figure over here. There are no halos on these figures. You can't separate out the believers from the bad guys by saying who's got a halo and who hasn't. And I think that's quite an interesting thing actually. Let me come back to the whole picture for a second and you can start to see what's going on. You've got some Roman soldiers. They're the ones with the spears and the hats, yeah, the helmets. Um, And then you've got a few figures who are people who knew Jesus. Um, And the one sort of just to the left of the cross between the two soldiers there, that seems to be John who was the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, he writes about himself in that way in, in his Gospel. And he's got those tears coming down from his eyes, um, and his hands clasped in prayer. He's fixed on the Christ. Yeah? Um, to the right, we seem to have the women. Whether this is three different Marys, there were three different Marys, or whether actually we need to see this as three different sides of Mary Magdalene, I'm not sure. And the thing that makes me wonder about that is you've got the Mary, who you might otherwise read to be Jesus' mother, crying onto the feet of the Christ. And we know that Mary Magdalene um, poured perfume onto Jesus' feet and wiped them with her tears and her hair. So that might be a reference back to that kind of anointing moment. Um, Behind her, we have another figure thrust up into the air, um, her head thrust up, rather. Um, She's an interesting one. We'll come back to her in a moment, I think. Just across, this is probably Peter in the green. He has these very fish-shaped eyes. Peter was a fisherman. Um, the fish becomes an interesting symbol anyway for Christianity because the ichthus fish was the symbol of the early Christians. And that sort of appears in a few of the eyes. So there's a lot of symbolism going on here, suggesting to us who are the devout faithful and who are the Roman soldiers. And if you look at the soldiers' spears, the shape of their spearheads, fits very closely with the shape of the wound on Christ's feet. So it's almost as though to say, you have inflicted this on the Christ. And then if you look at the ties that do up their helmets, they seem to reflect the shapes of the tears and the blood drops as well. So there's a lot of kind of echoing going on in such a way as to mark people out. So that all in some ways seems fairly straightforward. The rose is often seen to be a symbol of Mary at the base of Jesus' feet. Um, But there are a few things that are a little bit uncomfortable here. For one thing, we can't see Jesus' head or his arms or his body. We're left with just the legs and the feet, which is a really quite unusual stance. And there's another figure who we haven't looked at yet, and I don't know which side he belongs to. This figure down here, looking backwards, out of the composition at us. Everyone else knows what they're doing. They're either killing the Christ or they're mourning his death. This one doesn't seem to quite know where he fits. Now, this one's actually Cocteau's own self-portrait. and I think it's really interesting that he would paint himself into the composition without the tears, without the fish eyes, but without any of the things that mark out the soldiers either. Which side is he on? I think he's a really intriguing um, figure there. Um, I think he's making a little bit of a relationship for himself, perhaps, via some wordplay with John the Evangelist behind him. So, Jean is French for John, Jean Cocteau, and Jean the Disciple are being linked. And there's also this interesting reference on the soldier's shield, if you look at it. Um, It's a sort of hieroglyphic eagle. The eagle is the symbol for John in the sort of traditional gospel symbols. And you'd see that elsewhere in the church um, in Leicester Place um, because the lectern has the names of the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with their respective symbols. And John has the eagle there. There's a lot going on here. It's interesting that that shield is being held by the Roman soldier. It's almost as though he's holding it out, as if to say, which one are you? Um, And Cocteau sort of looks back at us. And if you've noticed, this is a, a chapel where you could take Holy Communion or Mass. Um, and so as you go up to the altar for that act of devotion, you've got this slightly doubtful face looking back at you. And I think that's a really interesting sort of problem to encounter at that point. Um, so he's ambivalent. He's looking out of the composition. He's almost questioning. He's wondering where to put himself. And it, it throws the person who's gone up to the altar into a sense of, well, who am I? I think you're left to identify with him, almost, as a sense of questioning. He's also a little bit like a figure such as Lot's wife, who looks back um, when she's not supposed to. She's supposed to walk away from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah behind her, and she turns back. And because she looks back, she turns into a pillar of salt. Um, there are various references to kind of looking back and not being wholeheartedly for in the, in the Bible. Um, and Cotto puts himself into this very awkward position here, I think. He does it elsewhere as well. This is a a small church in Villefranche-sur-Mer, which is in the south of France. Um, It's a church devoted to the fishermen, and especially to St. Peter. And one episode in the Gospels about St. Peter sees him walking on the water towards Jesus. (laughs) Oh, sorry. And as he walks towards Jesus, he suddenly starts to focus on the wind, and he starts to sink. Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And there's a really interesting word used for doubt in that particular passage, which is edistarsus in the Greek, which is a sort of wavering or hesitation. And it's a different word, actually, from the one that is used in other passages about doubt. So I've put a couple of famous passages about doubt up here. Um, One where a a man goes to Jesus asking for help for his unwell son, who's possessed by an evil spirit. Um, And Jesus says, well, why don't you believe? What do you mean if I can do it? And the man replies, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And the word there is apistia which is also um, from the same root as the word that is used for Thomas, doubting Thomas after the resurrection, stop doubting, apistos, and believe. So I think it's interesting that we have this word for wavering or hesitating in a passage that Cocteau has aligned himself with in another church. So we've got this sort of sense that there is doubt involved in this composition. Um, And I think wavering or hesitating kind of fit with an idea of ambiguity And I think there is, sorry, let me come back to it, there is some ambiguity in this mural about where Copto himself fits. Um, You might also think that ambiguity is a sign of modern art, in a way. And I wonder, um, if we go to Augustine for a moment, if we might start to think that actually doubt is a part of all faith, in a way. Um, this is Augustine's Confessions, um, much, much earlier um, theologian than we're thinking about at the moment, but um, quite relevant, I think. The notion began to grow in me that the philosophers whom they call academics were wiser than the rest because they held that everything should be treated as a matter of doubt and affirmed that no truth can be understood by men. So in other words, actually, if you're going to think, there has to be an element of doubt in that. If you're going to question, if you're going to broach the big questions of life, there will always be doubt Involved in that. So is doubt something that we should reject from the church? Is doubt something to be thrown out? Or is doubt something to be engaged with? And it seems that Cocteau is giving us an opportunity to engage with that, which I think is really interesting. He also engages with some um, other artists, I think, who've done something similar. So this is, um, this is Matisse in his Chapelle du Rosaire in Vence, which was another kind of project that came out of that Art Sacré moment. And here we have a Stations of the Cross, again on tiles, but unlike that earlier one in the Église Notre-Dame de France in London, it's a really mixed-up picture. You've got to try and decipher which is which. He's numbered them so we can just about make it out, but you've got to work your way through it And I wonder if perhaps this is a more experiential or what we might think of as phenomenological representation of faith, which is perhaps not always clear or straightforward. Perhaps the pathway that the believer is asked to walk is not always as clear-cut as going around the church and visiting one station at a time. And I think that's a really interesting picture that is sort of subtly inserted into a church which everybody thinks is beautiful and devotional. And it is, but there's a space there for kind of doubts and possibly something slightly ambiguous or less straightforward, at least. Um, Now, I think I will leave these in the slides, and if you want to come back to them um, on the recording, you're welcome to do so, but we might not have a chance to touch on all of these. These are a couple of literary references that I've brought out. I told you we'd come back to that woman looking up in the sky, didn't I? She's got eyes that sort of bulge, a little bit like breasts. They're very kind of sexual in a way. And I wonder if this is also an image of the Magdalene kind of harking back to her rather colorful past, um, as is intimated in the Gospels. Um, But I was interested in the Black Sun, which is an image of the eclipse that does take place according to the biblical um, um, explanation of the the death of Christ. Um, The the sky goes black for three hours. And so that's a literal picture of that. But it also got me thinking about a particular reference to a piece by Georges Bataille called Rotten Sun. And Georges Bataille was a a surrealist um, writer. Um, And there's a a passage there, which I won't read all of, um, but that thinks about the way in which the sun is in some ways the most elevated thing in the world, but can also be quite destructive. If you look straight at it, it stops being creative and becomes destructive and becomes horribly ugly, or the result of it may be horribly ugly. Um, and that made me also think about Jesus' feet in a slightly interesting way. Because if we've got the sun there and the feet there, I also writes about the big toe, which is the opposite in a way. If the sun is the most elevated thing, the big toe is the basest thing that you could think of. It's the most human part of the body in the sense that no other element of this body is as differentiated from the corresponding element of the anthropoid ape. So it's the thing that separates us out from monkeys, but it's also the thing that treads in the mud and that is dirty and that we reject and don't want to look at. And I published this as, alongside a couple of very attractive photographs of big toes with hairs growing out of them and horrible nails. Um, so it got me thinking about the way in which maybe Cocteau, who knows these writers... Is interested in the real humanity of Jesus with that depiction of the feet. So it's something to maybe chew over. Again, a little bit of ambiguity there for us. Um, but this is a, a poem that Cocteau himself writes, and I think he's engaging a little bit with the dice here as well. There's also a very famous French poem called Un coup de dé, jamais n'abolira le hasard. A throw of dice will never abolish chance. And I think inserting chance into the picture in the way that he does, the soldiers cast lots for Christ's clothing. Okay? So that's what this is a reference to. But the, the dice throwing is a fascinating image of chance, I think. And I'm just going to read you um, the first stanza of what's quite a long poem, actually, um, and which um, you can find online um, from the Crucifixion, 1946. This is by Cocteau himself. An accident happens so fast The other scarecrow, too attentive to its metamorphosis into branches of a tree, into knots of trees, into bones of a tree. A whole bark of skin of a twisted pine which bleeds and cracks, closed within a dream almost, mythological, terrified. The angels crying, quick, quick, there's not a minute to lose. Those innocent fellows circling around, crying at the top of their lungs and losing feathers, which blinded him and stuck fast to his wounds. I don't know what you get the sense of. It seems like a tragedy unfolding. An accident's taken place. Something has to stop it. Help. Something has to change. It's a very different depiction of what's going on in the crucifixion from the one that we get in the Bible. The Bible presents us with a kind of controlled narrative. The time has come. This is the moment. It's preordained. It's selected. It's chosen. It's no accident. And yet Cocteau presents us with this kind of dramatic tragic, accidental image of the crucifixion. The angels flying around, their feathered wings getting stuck to Christ's wounds. What are we going to do? How do we stop it? There's panic. And I think that sense of pitting that narrative against the one that we know from the Bible is a really interesting angle for Cocteau. And I think it's fascinating to read that poem alongside the crucifixion painting that he does in Notre-Dame-de-France and to bring it to bear on it. So I suppose what I'm positing here is that in these images, Cocteau is giving us not an image of certainty and an instruction as to what our devotion should look like, but something which invites us to question and possibly even deliberately to doubt Actually, is doubt necessary, even, we might ask, in order to have true faith? So why? Why put a mural in a church that has such an uncertain depiction of faith behind it? Surely we want the church to instruct us in our moral and theological thinking, don't we? Well, I've just suggested that we might not. We might find one answer in Cocteau's biography, Um, we might say that it was unwise, after all, for the church to have employed a former opium user and practising homosexual. Maybe this, after all, was too outrageous. And if we look at another element of this, at Boris Anrep's mosaic at one point was covered up with a panel that Cocteau himself had painted. It's since been removed as part of the um, restoration of the church, and they've revealed Ann Rep's mosaic, but kept Cocteau's panel to the side. It was sort of the, the best balance they could come up with. But Cocteau, at one point, had censored Ann Rep's um, mosaic. He didn't like it. I don't know if it was too simple. The simple lines of Cocteau belie actually quite a complex theology, I think. For him, the Ann Rep was too, I don't know, too wishy-washy, too straightforward, perhaps. Um, So That mosaic got covered up by Cocteau, but I'm interested here in that M actually, M for Marie, Mary, maybe. I wonder actually if it might even be M for Jean Marais, if we've got another Jean in the equation. Jean Marais was an actor in several of Cocteau's films, including Orpheus um, from 1950. And he was also Cocteau's lover for a while. By the time the church was built, he actually wasn't. But I'm interested in that M as a possible reference back. If you're going to censor one thing, it's almost a slight defiance. Homosexuality laws in France were relaxed a lot earlier than in the UK. Um, in the UK, it would sort of been illegal to be a practicing homosexual. At this point, the law wasn't changed until 67, um, But it had been legalized in France in 1791 in response to the revolution, actually. Um, but this is an image of jean Marais as Orpheus. And Orpheus is another figure who looks back to the underworld and loses Eurydice as a result of it. He's trying to rescue her. And the sun is his downfall. He looks back, having seen the sunlight, and Eurydice is lost to him. Um, and I think that's an interesting idea. Um, maybe I should have come to that earlier in relation to Lot's wife looking backwards. But I do wonder if we've got an image there of Jean Marais deliberately censoring the simplicity of the ANREP. And there's a precedent for that too. This is Picasso's guitar painting from 1927. I don't know if you can make out a couple of letters there. There's an M and a T. This is a time when he just entered into an illegal relationship with a, year, um, with a, a 15 year old girl, sorry, called Marie Therese Walter. Um, and prior to her coming of age, he does a few paintings which encrypt her name but don't make it public. So I wonder if Cocteau may even be thinking about some of those things. And so Cocteau biographically is what we might think of as on the margins. and. I was very interested when I was reading George Orwell's Down and Out in London and Paris to read about tramps and the, um, that's Orwell's word, okay? We might think of it slightly politically incorrectly now. Um, But the presence of tramps sleeping in churches, finding refuge in sacred spaces, in London in particular, and St. Martin in the Fields, which is just around the corner from this church. And obviously the Marists have a deliberate sort of social action mission to present. And so I got thinking about the way in which Orwell uses this kind of semi-autobiographical construct to depict himself as part of a group of down and outs, even though we know that actually he's not permanently part of that group and he has a a way out. Um, He has family money that can buy him out of the situation that he finds himself in. But he sort of uses that semi-autobiographical book if you haven't read it. It's a really interesting read um, to present us with a picture of the kind of class structures even within the poor. Um, tramps, paupers, dishwashers are not of the same class as each other. You wouldn't want to be identified with all of them. You might choose to be identified with one and not the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that idea of Cocteau, the filmmaker, the successful filmmaker, the poet. Almost deliberately identifying himself with a community that is on the margins and that has an ambiguous social position is a really interesting thing for him to be doing in a church which has so much of a heart for social action um, within that particular Catholic community. The church, still, if you go in the afternoon, you will find homeless men often. Sometimes women. I think I've only ever seen men for some reason. I don't know why. Um, sleeping on the pews in the church. They're not moved on. They're treated with respect. They're allowed to stay if they want to until the church closes. And they can engage with the other mission activities that the church has for them if they choose to. Um, so it is still that kind of refuge space. And to have a mural in that context seems to me to be highly appropriate in focusing on doubt and ambiguity, and marginalization. And I think Cocteau is quite deliberately presenting himself there in a kind of down-and-out capacity. Um, So there we go. Perhaps a sort of theology of doubt, looking back to the background of the church and existing in a really quite contemporary way in a church which is now not contemporary. This is from the 50s. Um, We might look to contemporary art to provoke us But I wonder, actually, if you go and stand and look at that mural, which in some ways seems quite conventional, you might find things about it that are somehow provocative. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC. At the heart of King's thinking